Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Forgotten is a production of iHeartMedia and Unusual Productions. Before we start, this podcast contains accounts which some listeners will find disturbing. But without them, the story can't be fully understood. Please take care while listening. Last time on Forgotten. And he told me, when they like a girl, they find her, no matter the cost. The men that I study, mostly they operate alone. So I started thinking, how could all of these men trust each other? Well, our speculation was that when you don't want a crime to be solved, it's because the resolution of it is going to be extremely either embarrassing to somebody in power or it's going to come back to you. I had an eyewitness who alleged that he had been at these parties and eventually the women would be killed because they knew too much. Alfredo Corchado was leaving the prison in Juarez in 2003, having finally been introduced by Dante Amaras to an eyewitness to the murders of women. This drug dealer had just told Alfredo that police were kidnapping women to be raped and killed by the cartel as a form of celebration. After the prison interview, Dante drove Alfredo back to the bridge to El Paso, but he had one final tip to share. And that's when Dante said, there's a name for this group, in the Juarez Cartel. There's a, a small sort of division. They're the gatekeepers. They're the ones who control the route and make sure that the drugs get into the United States. La Linea. At the time, La Linea was from what you described, it's like an unspeakable term. 
Nobody knows about La Línea. Nobody says anything about La Línea. Why? Because La Línea is really, when we talk about the power, they are the heart and soul of the Juarez cartel. La Línea means the line. And Dante told Alfredo that the group of policemen involved in abducting the women were also the enforcement arm for the Juarez cartel. And the world of organized crime was one that the devil's lawyer knew all too well. He didn't get his nickname for nothing. He'd represented people from the Juarez underworld in legal cases. And he had this drug dealer stashed in the city jail under a false name. And Alfredo still didn't know if his source was playing him. So to corroborate what he was hearing, he went to see Phil Jordan, the former head of the DEA in El Paso. We called Phil ourselves, and he didn't mince his words. First and foremost, the cartels control the police. A lot of the killings that occurred in the Juarez Corridor were done by members of law enforcement, Mexican law enforcement. According to Phil, La Línea often killed to enforce silence. According to the intelligence that we have, the police would pick up informants and then they would execute them, sometimes burying them alive. Phil also corroborated the involvement of this group in the abduction and murder of women. He knew them as the gatekeepers. But with the help of some DEA documents, he and Alfredo pieced together that this was another name for the same organization. Once we got those documents of the gatekeepers from the U.S. DEA, we could finally go to the Mexican side. We met with Jose Luis Vasconcelos, the drug czar, in Mexico City for the AJ's office. When I brought up La Línea, he did not want to talk about it. and just kind of pushed us away. He didn't really deny La Línea. I mean, he just kind of said, you know, tengan mucho cuidado, muchachos, you know, that, that kind of very thing. Be very careful. Be very careful. Jose Luis Vasconcelos was an assistant attorney general in Mexico whose mandate was to attack organized crime. And Alfredo was perplexed by the response to his questions about La Línea, so he kept going. I think in one way, it was good that I was so inexperienced and so naive. When that happens, you just keep going and you keep pushing and you push. I think some colleagues... My own mother would say that's stupidity. I would say I didn't know what I was getting into. In response to this pushing, Vasconcelos introduced Alfredo to the local anti-drug prosecutor in Juarez. We're having lunch, and again, you know, it's the same idea. What can you tell about La Línea? And suddenly he just, I mean, he just got really uncomfortable, really awkward. And he says, you know, I have to leave. Something else just happened. And I had to follow him outside and he just said stay away from them what made the mexican drug czar and his man in juarez so uncomfortable what does it say about la linea and its influence how high up did the corruption go and what did all of this have to do with the murders of women i'm os Veloshin. and i'm monica ortiz uribe this is forgotten the women of juarez Fuerte, 
So by this point, Monica, Alfredo had all the confirmation he needed that La Línea did exist. But who are they? They are the enforcement wing of the cartel. They kidnap, they kill, they dispose of bodies. La Línea is comprised primarily of state and local cops. And these state and local cops are pulling a double duty. And how do these cops end up getting corrupted by the cartel? The simplest way to put this is with the phrase plata or plomo, which means silver or lead. Either you take a bribe or we put a bullet in your head. And this goes for anyone, not just a cop. It goes for a politician, a street vendor, even a journalist. But sometimes this ultimatum isn't even necessary. Some people are willingly corrupted in exchange for some of the spoils of drug trafficking. And you told me about a word that's used in Juarez to describe this kind of complicity, metido. So metido can mean involved or implicated. And in Mexico and in Juarez, it's often used to describe someone that's involved or implicated in the drug trade. Just like Alfredo walked into his story and the underworld naively, so do many of the people who become metidos. By the time they realize just what they've gotten themselves into, it's too late. And it's through the process of metido that La Línea is able to exert its power. And Alfredo's reporting revealed that some of the cops in Juarez were Matido in the most horrific way. They were involved in the murders of the women. How shocking was Alfredo's story at the time? Well, other reporters before Alfredo had also reported on this theory that the police may be involved in the murders of women, including Diana. The difference with Alfredo is he's able to get confirmation from top federal sources, and he's able to get a name. La Línea, indicating that it's not just one or two or three corrupt cops. No, no, this is a formal organization, and that, that is scary. La Línea translates as the line, and you mentioned the name might have some connection to the border, but I was very struck by the fact that it's unspeakable. Well, La Línea exerted its power through terror, It mercilessly went after enemies and snitches. And so this pact of silence is far-reaching to the point where even Mexico's top drug czar and his man in Juarez are hesitant to talk about La Línea. And if you have the authorities in collusion with the drug traffickers, achieving justice is impossible. These men, they had so much power, they could pick a woman off the streets, do unthinkable things to her, dump her in a vacant lot, and not suffer any consequences for it. They would be protected by law enforcement. Alfredo had returned to Juarez to answer what he thought was a straightforward question. Who is killing the women? But the answer to that question seemed to involve a level of conspiracy and corruption that he never believed was possible. And the deeper Alfredo dug, 
the more complicity in the murders he discovered. It's not here are the bad guys, here are the good guys. There were no good guys. Everybody was involved. You have very powerful groups who, in order to have power, they share the profits. And then suddenly it becomes so vicious that you never know who is the government and who are the criminals. They're one and the same. Alfredo's mother had made him promise that he'd never report on organized crime, but he was finding that promise hard to keep. His reporting on the murders of women had exposed to him why so many investigators had failed to unmask the killers. And he was gleaning a new understanding of how power worked in Mexico. But Alfredo maintained some degree of optimism. He believed that if he exposed what was happening, things might change. So he accepts an invitation to Juarez shortly after his story was published to discuss the findings with some Mexican colleagues. But he didn't get the response he was expecting. One colleague came up to me and says, Alfredo, there is no La Línea. And this is someone I knew and someone I trusted, a Mexican reporter. And I said, listen, if there is no La Línea, we will write a correction. And we will own this thing. We don't want to give Juarez a bad name, but I'm telling you, we got documents, we have people on the record. And he just kind of looked at me like, ten cuidado. Be careful. Exactly what the drug czar in Mexico City had told Alfredo. But was it a friendly warning or a veiled threat? Was the trusted colleague himself metido? Well, Alfredo had all the DEA documentation about La Línea But even so, he started to doubt himself. Then, within minutes of leaving the panel, he got all the confirmation he'd ever need. I'm walking away, and there's a number that comes in. And it's not a number, it's just unknown. It says unknown on the phone, and the person says, Aquí voy detrás de ti, por la 16. I'm right behind you on 16th of September Avenue. I was being watched. And I hung up the phone, and I'm looking at everything with this paranoia. It goes from one minute you're doubting your reporting to the next moment you're like, holy shit, they do exist. And they're here. And they may be right next to me, or the car may be right here, or the guy walking behind me may be the person. I am scared shitless. What do I do now? So I just made a beeline. I ran. Alfredo is only a mile from the bridge to the US, and he needs to get to the border to safety. But as he runs through the streets, he's suspicious of every person who looks his way, and he's starting to attract notice. He knows he might not make it all the way. So with his life on the line, and in desperation, Alfredo makes a beeline towards someone he doesn't even know if he can trust. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics. 
as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Alfredo is running through the very streets where so many women had disappeared without witnesses. He's realizing that in hunting the story, he himself has become the prey. Because La Ligna, 
the organization responsible for the abduction and murder of so many young women, won't tolerate any more revelations about its inner workings. But silencing journalists and murdering women is not the reason that La Linea exists, although both do play a role in protecting their real business, drug trafficking. So Alfredo receives this call, Monica, on his cell phone, and it's not exactly like the Dallas Morning News would have given his number out. So it's kind of crazy because not only does this person on the other end of the line know where he is, they've managed to get his cell phone number. How's that possible? Geez, wouldn't we all like to know that? Wouldn't Alfredo like to know that? But the fact that they've got it is very concerning. That means that someone he thinks he can trust is betraying him. I mean, it just proves how far their tentacles reach. That even an American journalist for a major U.S. newspaper can be threatened by them. You can imagine this phone call that Alfredo receives was exactly what his mother was fearing when she made him promise not to cover these kinds of stories. Do you know anything about the conversation between them? I imagine that it was no different from the interaction I had with my own mother. Leave them alone. Because if you don't, they're going to come after you. And I don't want to be one of those grieving mothers I see sobbing into the news cameras on a regular basis. How do we get here where mothers from Paula Flores to Alfredo's mother to your mother are so scared about their children in Juarez? The drug cartels in Mexico are like a cancer. It's a cancer that's been metastasizing ever since the 1980s. And why is it so severe in Juarez? Well, honestly, it comes down to simple geography. I mean, there's a reason why the Spaniards called my hometown the Pass. 400 years ago, the El Paso Juarez region was the midsection of one of the most important trade routes in the Americas, the Camino Real. It went from Mexico City all the way to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Now, fast forward a few centuries, people and goods are still moving in droves across this region. Only now, there's an international border restricting that movement. And those restrictions created a golden opportunity for the black market. And with help from La Linea, the Juarez cartel was one of the groups that exploited this black market opportunity. So Miami had this reputation of being the place to smuggle drugs into the U.S., um, which is why movies like Scarface uh, were set there. But basically, the government got wise to that, and traffickers started looking for alternate routes. Yes. This is when Colombian drug traffickers discover the U.S.-Mexico border, which turns out to be a far superior route And the feds, they didn't catch up until 1989. In that year, they busted a warehouse in North Los Angeles and found 21 tons of cocaine, reportedly worth $6.5 billion. Wow. Still the largest seizure of cocaine in American history. And guess where those 21 tons came from? Uh Uh-huh. El Paso Juarez. This was now the new hotspot. By the late 90s, 
The estimate was that 70% of all drug shipments to the U.S. were coming through the U.S.-Mexico border. But the reason that these drug cartels are so powerful is because of demand on the American side. And that demand is worth billions of dollars every single year. And that's the money that goes to corrupting the state and local police who are kidnapping and raping and dumping these women in the desert. El Paso and Juarez have been smuggling cities for a hundred years, but Juarez has only been what Diana Washington Valdez calls a killing field for women since the 1990s. So what changed? How did La Línea come into existence and become so brutal? To help answer these questions, we spoke with Howard Campbell. He's an anthropologist at the University of Texas, El Paso. And in 2009, the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations asked him to testify about how the U.S. might respond to escalating violence in Mexico. I don't think that in the long term we're ever going to stop drug cartels exactly. For 35 years we've been doing this, but we don't see much change in the supply or demand. The most effective ways the U.S. can help Mexico with a drug problem are by, first of all, cutting our demand for illegal drugs. Second, slowing the flow of guns from the U.S. to Mexico. Third, fighting drug organizations... Howard believes that the nature of the murders of women in Juarez, the patterns in the selection, and the sexual violence that goes hand-in-hand with the killings, has meant that many outside investigators have focused on the wrong leads. I think to some extent the understanding of this femicide issue was seen through the filter of the American phenomenon of serial killers, Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy. If you think the problem is serial killers, then the problem is catching the serial killers. But if your other interpretation is that the problem is the lack of a functioning police system and judicial system in Mexico, corrupt politicians, drug cartels and gangs. If you think that's the source of the violence, then that's what you need to attack first. As far as Howard is concerned, no matter how many Manuelillos are taken off the streets of Juarez, or even how many El Chapo Guzmans are extradited to the U.S., the sums of money involved in drug trafficking means that corruption is endemic on both sides of the border. It's a multi-billion dollar industry in these two cities. I mean, El Paso and Juarez are probably some of the most important places in the entire world for narcotics trafficking. That's another misnomer about drug trafficking is that it's Mexican groups um, invading the United States. No, it's, it's Mexicans and Americans working together to produce, to transport, to smuggle, to sell drugs. You're talking about at least 100 years of history. In fact, up until 1850... El Paso and Juarez were one community. Both were in Mexico. It was only after the Mexican-American War that El Paso became part of Texas, with Juarez remaining in Mexico. But the two cities stayed deeply connected. And by the 1920s, the area was a smuggler's paradise, from bootleg liquor to illegal narcotics, with the business in Juarez run by an unlikely figure. Starting around the time of Prohibition, the smuggling of marijuana and heroin was largely monopolized by one person, a woman called La Nacha. She had a career that lasted 40 or 50 years. That's quite a long time. That's quite a long time. 
And so Lanacha died of natural causes in her 70s. And but, so, I mean, well, that's every drug trafficker's <laughs> dream. dream. That's like exactly. the golden that's reaching heaven or something. Like. So Lanacha was a genius. She was uneducated, grew up as a poor woman, and eventually somehow figured out how to make this drug business work. What protected her for that long? So she was well protected by a vast extended family, but also her accomplices in the municipal police, surely within the municipal government of Juarez, but also even at the federal level. From the beginning in Juarez, illegal business thrived with the complicity of the police and government. But this didn't include the abduction and murder of young women who had nothing to do with drugs. In fact, for a while, drug smuggling in Juarez operated like the old-school Italian mafia, violent to its enemies, but woven into the fabric of the community. Things began to shift when America's consumption habit shifted. People started to use cocaine. It was sort of the passing of the hippie era into the disco era, and the Mexican drug trafficking organizations adapted to that. In the 1980s, there was an enterprising Juarez local who was more than happy to help meet this new demand, even if that meant taking on a second job. Rafael Aguilar Guajardo was head of the federal police in the Chihuahua area. So he formed the first Juarez cartel, and they began to smuggle cocaine. That's when things changed. There wasn't that much violence in Juarez in the 1980s, and so you had this very impressive drug trafficking organization that was making hundreds of millions of dollars, but not that many people were getting killed. Juarez remained a city that La Nacha would have recognized. But the sums of money pouring in because of cocaine began to attract notice from outsiders. Not least from a man from the western Mexican state of Sinaloa. He too was a federal policeman called Amado Carrillo Fuentes. Carrillo Fuentes was the great innovator in Mexican drug trafficking of bringing 747 airplanes with the seats removed filled with cocaine from Colombia all the way up to the northern Mexican border and then smuggling them into the United States, sometimes in 18-wheel trucks right across the free bridge, you know, central El Paso and Juarez, many times with paid-off U.S. customs agents or U.S. immigration officers. When you spend time in El Paso, you can't help but notice the steel fence that bisects it from Juarez and the militarization of the border. But no amount of infrastructure can protect an organization from an inside job. And Carrillo Fuentes, the police officer turned trafficker, understood this better than most. He recognized that the bigger his organization got, the more money it could bring in. The more money, the more corrupt officials on both sides of the border. And so it went on. But he also recognized that he was operating far from his home turf. So, he brought in some associates from Sinaloa. Carrillo Fuentes brought in a whole bunch of sicarios, hitmen. He had a very complex organization involving people guarding safe houses. You have drivers, you have gunmen, you have accountants. You have essentially an informal criminal corporation, and that's what Carrillo Fuentes created. At first, the two former policemen, Aguilar and Carrillo Fuentes, worked together solidifying an empire of cocaine trafficking. But after a while, the outsider saw his opportunity to go it alone. Now, this isn't the same way as when you have a big American corporation buys up another corporation. It isn't as neat and clean. Carrillo Fuentes had Aguilar 
the original founder of the Juarez cartel, murdered in 1993. And that's when all the violence, that's when the shit hit the fan, was when the Carrillo Fuentes cartel took over in Juarez. Despite the loss of their leader, the local cartel weren't going to roll over for the man from Sinaloa. So Carrillo Fuentes began a reign of terror. So in the early 1990s, Juarez becomes part of this kind of globalized, multinational, extremely violent drug cartel. You say 1993 as the takeover of Amado Carrillo Fuentes of the Juarez Plaza 1993 is also when these brutal, horrific women's murders began to happen in the city. So yes. you're saying it's not a coincidence? No, I would say that it's not a coincidence. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. I'm not saying the cartel came and they said, okay, we're going to start committing femicides. What I'm saying is I think it's an excellent hypothesis to think that many women that were raped, kidnapped, murdered in Juarez were killed and, and mistreated by sicarios, hitmen for the drug cartels. Outsiders who don't feel connected to the local population whose job is to brutalize and kill would see women walking on the streets as pieces of meat, just like the people they would kidnap and murder who were enemies of their drug organization. Alfredo's reporting had already revealed the hand of organized crime in the murders of women. But Howard was helping us piece together how a hostile takeover of the Juarez cartel had turned the women who lived in the city into targets, as FBI special agent in charge of El Paso, Hardrick Crawford had called them, antelopes at the waterhole. So La Lina was an organization that exerted total control and whose policy of plato plomo left their victims with nowhere to turn. And Alfredo was experiencing this firsthand as he ran through the streets of downtown Juarez, hoping to make it back to the bridge. The one person he could think to turn to for help was Dante Almaraz. But as he got closer to the lawyer's office, he realized that he was running towards the very people he was trying so hard to escape. I'm just pushing forward. I, I realize where Dante's office is, and I'm just pushing and looking all around me. And I noticed that right next to Dante's, I'd just forgotten there was a police station. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, the cops are with La Linea. What am I doing? I ran, I come in. And I just went straight to his office. Paula Flores and so many other mothers had learned that there was no point in going to the police. And as far as Alfredo was concerned, doing so would further endanger his life. So he put his fate into the hands of the very lawyer he'd been told by so many people was not to be trusted as a source, let alone a savior. So I explained to Dante, what's, you know, this is what's going on. I think it was the first time I saw Dante and he looked worried. And then he finally says, Yet the chingaste. You're fucked. I said, Why? He says, They're onto you. La Linea's onto you. And he says, You know, the only good thing is that you're American. And I said, Yeah, but my cousin is a cop, a Juarez cop, and I have family in Juarez. And he says, Well, then you're really fucked. Something may happen to them because of you. Alfredo doesn't have time to dwell on the consequences of his reporting. As far as he's concerned, his own life depends on getting back to the U.S. as fast as possible. So I tell Dante, I say, look, how do I get across? And he basically says, uh, why don't I drive you back? Because I don't think you should walk. I'll just drive you. He had an SUV and basically just put me in the back. Crossing the back, 
and I'm looking through the windows and I'm looking at all these places that I grew up. Mariscal, you know, again, the marches. At one point I wanted to be a songwriter and a singer and we had a little studio right in that area. You know, all these things are going through my mind and I'm also thinking, what if Dante's in on this? What if he's not taking me to the bridge? What if he's taking me somewhere? What if he's taking me to the cops? And then I see him on the phone and he's, he just sounds so <clears throat> nonchalant. It's just another normal day. I'm trying to sort of get Dante to tell me everything's going to be okay, but the whole time he's on the damn phone. Alfredo was panicking. He wasn't sure whether he could trust the devil's lawyer, whether Dante might still be Metido or on La Línea's payroll. In fact, Alfredo wasn't even sure if he'd make it out of Juarez alive. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, 
a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Alfredo was in the back of Dante's SUV, trying to make out where they were going. It was just a quick little drive, but to me it just felt like forever. Finally, it became clear that the lawyer was taking him back to the border. And as they arrived at the bridge that would allow Alfredo to escape to the safety of El Paso, the lawyer got off the phone. And once again, he had some final words for the journalist. I think he saw how scared I was. And he's trying to tell me how important it was what I did. But he says, I get the huevos. It's Ciudad Juarez. You have to have balls. Don't be afraid. So basically, he's telling you, don't be intimidated. Continue your work. Um, I think one of his lines was, esto es Juarez, chingao. This is Juarez, damn it. You know, don't be intimidated. Keep searching. Keep asking questions. Keep digging. In the moment that Dante dropped him off at the bridge, Alfredo realized once and for all that he could trust him. In fact, it was the lawyer who helped him get to El Paso beyond the reach of La Línea and perhaps saved his life in the process. So, Monica, that moment where Alfredo gets back to the bridge and he's able to cross into El Paso, you told me you understood exactly how he's feeling. Yeah, certainly when I was reporting on the drug war in Juarez, once I crossed over uh, the, the bridge and drove underneath the sign that said, Bienvenidos a los Estados Unidos, welcome to the United States, I would feel this rush of relief come over me. And I would recognize just how stressed I had been on the other side. But I knew where to draw the line as long as I reported on the victims of the violence that the cartel exacts on the city of Juarez, I was unlikely to be bothered. They don't care about the victims. It did involve going into a, into a dangerous city where being in the wrong place at the wrong time could get you killed. But the kind of reporting I tried to do was reporting that wouldn't result in me being specifically targeted. Nonetheless, you told me about those cowboy boots and about thinking about what it might be like to be stuffed in the back of someone's car. And it's kind of astonishing to me how much risk Alfredo took and you took to cover this story, but also that both of you get to come home. And that's something I found very striking about 
that exchange between Dante and Alfredo, when Dante says to him, keep digging, it's almost as though he's passing the torch because Alfredo can go back to safety and Dante has to turn around back to the city where his friend Mario Escobedo was assassinated not that long ago. It's a very poignant moment. In a sense, Dante sees Alfredo as this beacon of hope. Maybe if the Americans can call out what's truly happening in Juarez, something will change. The fact that this conversation takes place at the foot of the international bridge that connects Juarez to El Paso, the bridge to Dante might have symbolized the bridge between impunity and justice. Dante had taken enormous risk in exposing to Alfredo who was complicit in the murders of women in Juarez. And it was because of him that the systematic involvement of the police was confirmed and that the name La Línea was published, disturbing their culture of silence. But as nonchalant as Dante was talking on the phone as he drove Alfredo back to the border, he was well aware that there would likely be a price for talking to a journalist, let alone saving his life. After publishing his story, Alfredo moved on to Mexico City as he'd planned, and Dante stayed in Juarez. But they stayed in touch. We talked several times, but every time he called, it was like a sense of urgency. It was like he was scared. So I would just say, Dante, are you okay? ¿Qué pasó? What's, what, what's going on? I came back to Ciudad Juarez because he wanted to meet me. He said, look, I have things I want to share with you, things I want to tell you. But I thought, you know, he's got something big. And we decided to meet somewhere near the bridge. I was at the Kentucky Club. I was there for an hour, then two hours. Never showed up. Like a few days later, I saw it in the news. He had been killed. Right near the same area where I had run to his office. Just gunned down by hitmen with a car with New Mexico plates. Conveniently, the cameras were not working that day. Dante was gone. Was his murder ever solved? Murder was never solved. Do you have any ideas why he was killed? I think oftentimes when people get killed in Mexico, it's because they know too much. I think it's something I've learned. It's not always maybe smart to try to know so much. Uh, but again, uh, you know, <laughs> we were young, we were hopeful. You were certainly played a role in my trying to steer away from covering the drug cartels because I'll never forget a voicemail you left on my phone. This is about 10 years ago now. Acuérdate de algo, Mónica Ortiz Uribe. Nos gusta el caldo frío o caliente. It's me. Don't freak out. Don't tell your mom. <laughs> Joking. Uh, <laughs> you mean something me. like, Monica, we, we, we like our soup cold or hot. And I was like, man, that's some dark humor, Alfred. <laughs> Where did you get that, that was, from? Uh, from the cartels. You know, this is like the cartel saying they like the soup cold or hot. You know, it may be five years. It may be 10 years. They might forgive you, but they're never going to forget. And they might catch up with you someday. Right. Híjole. So I got the gist of Alfredo's joke about the soup, Monica. But what exactly does it mean? In other words, you are their soup, and sooner or later, they're going to eat you, hot or cold. 
Sooner or later, they'll take their revenge, perhaps when you least expect it. So Alfredo came to learn this, but Dante knew it all along. But nonetheless, he kept going. Remember Dante told Alfredo, this is Juarez, damn it, you've got to have guts. And Dante did. In the end, he died living up to his own saying. He suffered the same fate as his friend Mario Escobedo, gunned down in the typical drive-by execution favored by La Línea. Dante may have started out as the devil's lawyer, but in the end, you could say he and Mario gave their lives in the name of justice. La Línea, the line. Dante had knowingly crossed it, and he paid the ultimate price. He did live long enough to see one of the bus drivers exonerated and the truth of what was happening to the women in Juarez exposed in the American press. But the other bus driver died in prison in mysterious circumstances after a botched operation. Mario Escobedo's father, who'd led the protest in front of the Juarez Attorney General's office, carrying his son's casket, was assassinated in 2009 at his office, along with his other son, Edgar. There were eight women's bodies discovered in the cotton fields in 2001, and in some sense, that was just the beginning of the crime. Within the space of a few years, at least four people seeking to reveal the truth of those women's murders had themselves been assassinated, and several others caught up in the story also died prematurely. Even Vasconcelos, the drug czar in Mexico City who Alfredo met, died in a plane crash in 2008, and some suspected foul play. Demanding justice in Juarez is a deadly business. Which makes that other line, the one that separates it from El Paso, all the more significant. Alfredo could cross the bridge back to safety, and he lived. Dante could drive Alfredo up to the bridge, but he'd die in Juarez. But... As Howard Campbell told us, the cartel's reach doesn't stop at the border. El Paso was a dormitory for drug traffickers, high-level drug traffickers, hitmen from the cartels, hundreds of drug smugglers, probably hundreds of stash houses where drugs are stored, trucking businesses that are dedicated to drug trafficking. And so the economy of El Paso was completely saturated with drugs and illegal money. And we consider this here normal and not particularly a problem as long as you don't get hurt or you don't get in trouble. People just kind of turn a blind eye, even to this day. There's dramatic inequality and unfairness in the relationship between the two cities, even though it has made a living off of drug smuggling. El Paso is incredibly safe, whereas Ciudad Juarez, where half the population of El Paso has relatives and friends and the like, is one of the most violent cities in the world and dangerous cities in the world. And I don't think most people in El Paso really care about changing that. There's a kind of way in which people accept this inequality and this exploitation of Mexico as a source for illegal drugs that we enjoy consuming. And we farm out the risk to the Mexicans who are the ones that die by the thousands in the drug violence. And so it isn't right, it's hypocritical, it's unjust, it's unfair, but whether you like it or not, it's just everyday life here on the border. Howard got an insight into the depths of this hypocrisy from one of his students at the University of Texas, El Paso. 
I believe he was a an immigration officer. And in the class, we would debate issues related to Mexico, and he would always stand up for the U.S. government. And the other students, many of whom were Mexican-Americans, hated the U.S. Immigration Service, and so they didn't like him. <laughs> and he would come to class in uniform, but I found it interesting that he would wear a gold necklace around his neck with a gold anchor, very expensive piece of jewelry. And then one time I saw him at a very fancy mall in West El Paso, and he came out with huge bags of expensive clothing that he had just purchased. Well, soon after he was my student, he was arrested for being a corrupt immigration officer and allowing uh, large amounts of cocaine of the Juarez cartel to cross into El Paso from Juarez on the bridge. According to court documents, Howard's student, the immigration officer, was charging the cartel $10,000 for each cocaine-laden car that he waved through. This was La Línea in action. Except in El Paso, they weren't murdering young women or people who dared to ask questions. But their money was just as capable of corrupting U.S. officials. And I was beginning to understand the deep irony of the fence that divides the two cities. I would say that it's a very contradictory place because even though you have thousands of people are involved in drug trafficking, drug smuggling, drug dealing, and you also have thousands of federal law agents, uh, DEA, Customs, you name the agency. You have one of the largest military bases in the world, Fort Bliss, so there's soldiers everywhere. There's municipal, you know, city cops, you know, state cops, any number of law enforcement agencies, the FBI in El Paso. So it's a simultaneously, it's this kind of zoo of... Criminals and the law, living together and even marrying each other. Alfredo was talking about Juarez when he said, everybody's involved, Metido. But the thing about Metido is that it's never really clear just how compromised a person is. And that brings us back to an American law enforcement official whose name is likely familiar by now. Hardrick Crawford was head of the FBI, started to go over there a lot and got associated with high-ranking businessmen in Juarez. Hardrick was the most outspoken American official on the killings of women in Juarez. He even gave a quote to a Mexican newspaper where he called the murders crimes against humanity. I had a moral mission that I felt that I was empowered on a different level than the U.S. Constitution. That mission would give Hardrick a first-hand understanding of the word metido. And it would unleash a series of events that called his own life into question. So I was in the house by myself, and uh, my brother said, Rick, did you ever think about eating your gun? I said, I did. I did seriously consider killing myself. I'm Oz Velocian. And I'm Monica Ortiz-Uribe. See you next time.
Forgotten, The Women of Juarez is co-hosted by me, Monica Ortiz Uribe. And me, Oswald Oshin. Forgotten is executive produced by me and Mangesh Hatikida. Our producers are Julian Weller and Katrina Norvell. Sound editing by Julian Weller, Jacopo Penzo, and Aaron Kaufman. Lucas Riley is our story editor. Caitlin Thompson is our consulting producer. Recording assistance this episode from Miguel Perez. Production support from Emily Marinoff and Aaron Kaufman. Our theme tune is Derecho de Nacimiento, as performed by Natalia Laforcade. Music by Leonardo Heblum and Jacobo Lieberman. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.